Both of our scriptures come from the Gospel of Matthew. Here now first from chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here our second scripture. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Almost since the very beginning of humanity, we started pointing fingers. Have any of you ever caught this before? In Genesis chapter 3, after Eve eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and for those of you who were here three years ago when I preached on this topic, do you guys remember what I told you about what the Hebrew kind of conveys about Adam's presence at that scene? Where was he? Right next to her, because she takes and eats of the tree, and then she turns and gives it to him. So Adam's listening the whole time and thinking, let's see what happens to this woman. I've always wanted to eat this tree, or eat from this tree. And so he's sitting there, he's waiting, and and they, they eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one commandment God had given to them to not do. 
And then later they are, they hear God show up in the garden. They hear his footsteps and they, they know that he's there to meet with them. They probably had these regular appointments all the time where God would show up and be in their presence and they would commune with him. And they hear it and they fear because they know that they've broken his command. And so they hide from him. And God calls them out from the bush that they're hiding in. He gets Adam and Eve to come out from their hiding and he confronts them. And he says, Adam, what did you do? And what does Adam do? It's the woman that you gave me, right? Fingers pointing. The woman that you gave me is the one who led to this. And then God turns to Eve and says, Eve, what did you do? And what does Eve do? Eve says, it's the serpent. And she might as well say, the serpent you made, <laughs> right? And I saw this cute comic when I was looking for things, but it wasn't big enough where the serpent was like, I don't have any fingers at the end. <laughs> Almost since the beginning, humanity has blamed others for their own choices and for their own sins and for their own faults or ignoring their own faults and their own sins. They've chosen to blame others for the ills of the world, right? How many of you guys know what Congress's approval rating is? There was laughter there. Why was there laughter there? Congress's approval rating is in single digits so often, right, that it's, it's laughable. And yet, is there very many congressmen and women who individually have that low of approval ratings? No. Because your congressman and woman is always wonderful, right? It's all everybody else's congressmen and women that they elect into the Congress that's the fault. No one ever wants to own fault for themselves. Nobody ever wants to admit that they might be a part of the problem. How many of you can recognize this in yourself? Good. You guys can leave. You don't even need this sermon. Everybody whose hands were down, everything I say from this point on is directed directly at you because you need this sermon. We have had this tendency as humanity since the scripture says the very beginning. Since we sinned against God, since we chose to rebel against his knowledge of good and evil and create each and every one of our little individual knowledges of good and evil. And as they've conflicted against each other, we don't want to admit our own fallibility, our own finiteness, our own limitations. And we want to point to everybody else as being wrong and us as being right. Some of us are more like that than others. In Leviticus, we see for the first time an idea enter into the worship of the people of Israel, the scapegoat. How many of you have ever heard the term scapegoat before? Okay, most everybody. This actually comes from scripture. And what would happen is on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, every year, when they would gather together to atone for the sins of all of Israel, two goats would be chosen by lot by the priests. And the priests would bring them to the high priest at the temple. And the temple would then bless both of them. And one of them would be chosen to be sacrificed on the altar as a death sacrifice for the sins of Israel, to pay for the sins of Israel. And the other would be determined to be the scapegoat. And they would actually tie ribbons and stuff around it. And they would cast it away and drive it away into the desert so that the sins of Israel would be on this goat and would be driven away from the people. And the goat would be driven into the desert to die. What did that goat ever do to anybody? 
Nothing. But the image is of someone or something carrying the burden for the whole, right? This is an amazing foreshadowing in the scriptures we know of the work of Jesus. That Jesus himself would become the ultimate scapegoat. That all the sins of humanity would be placed on him, though he doesn't deserve it. And that he would be driven into the darkness for us, for our sake. And he would also play the role of the sacrificial goat that would be sacrificed on the altar, right? When he was crucified. And so Jesus plays both roles. And so both roles are a way of foreshadowing Jesus and foreshadowing the need of Jesus. But the term scapegoat has been used for all kinds of things throughout time and history. After World War II, people were desperate to make sense of what happened in early 20th century Germany. As they looked at normal people, by any account, people much like the rest of us who got wrapped up into Nazism and did horrendous things in the name of the government that they served, people began to try and wonder, how could this have happened? And can we name the elements that made this happen so that we can try to maybe avoid making this happen ever again in any other society? And so philosophers began to talk about this idea of scapegoating. And probably the most famous philosopher from the 20th century who talked about this was René Girard, French philosopher. And René Girard said that, that human culture is driven by a desire to gain or obtain that which they do not have. And so we look around at our neighbors and we see all that they have, gifts, talents, strengths, skills, possessions, whatever it might be, that are different than ours that we don't have. And we desire after those skills or desire after those things. And so we begin to kind of build a tension in society. And this tension builds up to the point where if something doesn't break, all out chaos is going to happen. And it's at that moment, he says, that the scapegoat mechanism comes in. The scapegoat mechanism is when society determines as a whole, as a majority, that this group of people or this one individual is the fault of all of our problems. And we're going to put all of it on him or her and we're going to cast them into the desert and away from us so that we all feel like we've somehow resolved and solved that tension. And so he named this and he basically said that this is what happens in society over and over and over again. The interesting thing about his his thinking, and I don't think he was a very devoted Christian, but he obviously was raised in the Christian faith, is he said that the Bible narrative and explicitly the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is a judgment against this kind of behavior. That in Jesus being the scapegoat of his generation, the one difference with him is that when he was raised back to life, when he was given power over death and sin itself, that Jesus broke that system and that culture of scapegoating that went in cycles throughout history. And in in fact, he cast judgment on that kind of behavior. I don't know much more about his philosophy than that. I've heard other people talk about him. I've read little snippets of his stuff and quotes from him and things. But I've always found this idea interesting. 
but I don't think it quite goes far enough. It tries to boil down into philosophical or sociological terms something that I think is far more deeply ingrained into our sinful lives than we all would like to admit or recognize. And Jesus' life was more than just being the scapegoat for all of humanity or breaking the, sky, the cycle of scapegoating as a mechanism for society. Jesus overturns all of our sociological expectations in everything he does. Jesus overturns the whole concept and idea of the other and, and makes that whole idea ridiculous in the first place. I think from a very early age, I recognize that many times in my own life or in the lives of others that I would witness around me that we would often begin to blame the obvious sin or the obvious sinner for the ills of society and we would carefully neglect addressing our own sinfulness and our own dark hearts. It's all those people over there's fault that America is falling apart or that culture is falling apart, or that my community is falling apart. And never, what role do I have in what I see going on around me? And how can I change? But Jesus didn't do that. In Jesus' day, there was all kinds of people who were blamed for the ills of society, people who were considered to be cursed, people who were considered to be possessed by demons, people who were considered to be unclean because they had diseases that no one understood how they worked, and so they would be cast off. People who were poor and who they, they believed, just like we do today, oh, they're poor because they deserve it, they're addicts or they're lazy or they're whatever. And so they were cast off from society. An interesting group of people who were cast off from Jewish society that, that is not fitting with the rest are tax collectors. How many of you guys know anything about tax collectors in Jesus' time? A few of you. Tax collectors were Roman. They worked at, for the Roman government, for the Roman authorities, but they were of the local area. And they would actually make a bid to the local Roman authorities to be the people who would collect the taxes. And so they were literally paying the taxes in advance for an entire region. These are not poor people, right? These are wealthy people or people who are able to gain wealth and power enough that they could pay for an entire region's taxes in advance. And then they are given special authority by the Roman government to go and to collect those taxes to, to be able to refill their pockets from the people. So the Roman government got a guaranteed tax paid in advance, right? And then it was on the onus of the tax collector to be able to go out into society and collect that which was owed to the Roman government and a little bit for his own fees. But they often went a little bit more than a little bit, right? They, paid, they charged more and they kind of gouged people. And they became wealthy. But this is not the reason alone why tax collectors were outcasts within the society. They were also outcasts in society because of who they worked for. Right? The Jewish people are and were a proud people who always claimed independence from any kind of rule of anyone on earth. It is God and God alone who rules Israel. Right? And so this government, Rome, that came and oppresses them and holds them in servitude is an enemy. 
So any good Jewish person who would submit themselves to be a servant of the Roman government and to collect taxes for them, for their power, automatically are not good Jewish people anymore, right? And so they were cast out from society, not because of some kind of untouchableness or whatever, but because they were seen as traitors, as disloyal to the God of Israel and to Israel. And yet Jesus, we see in our first passage today, not only eats with tax collectors, but calls one of them to be his disciple. Can you imagine that? A teacher of great repute and a miracle worker who's going around, but who calls for himself somebody who is seen to be a traitor against the cause of the God of Israel to be one of his disciples. Jesus turning upside down the social norms of his day. We see in a story later, this is this picture's from, that's Zacchaeus up in the tree. We know that there is this tax collector, Zacchaeus in Jericho, and, and we know all of us know the little kid's song, right? Should we sing it? Some people are singing it already. I didn't really mean, should we sing it? <laughs> Zacchaeus runs ahead because he can't. He's short. He can't see over the crowds. He runs ahead. He climbs up a sycamore tree. And Jesus sees him do this. And Jesus actually acknowledges him. And then Jesus goes and eats at his house later. Jesus is regularly surrounding himself with people that the religious establishment of his day would never have interacted with. Sinners, the poor, lepers, all kinds of people who are considered to be untouchable, people who you should never minister to, people who you should never associate with, or you yourself might somehow contract whatever they have and become just as unclean before God and the people of God as they are. Don't touch them. And yet Jesus never had that problem. In fact, Jesus tells a whole story, a whole story about a good what? Samaritan. What? Now we look at that today and we don't get the concept of it, but in their day, the largest group of blamed outcasts in the society of Israel were the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a group of people who had interbred with the Babylonian uh, invaders in the Babylonian exile. They were Jews who stayed, but they, they intermarried and they kind of created a separate cult that worshiped on a different hill and they owned a different land and they were hated by the people of Israel because they were seen to be traitors, blood traitors of the people of God, and they were seen to be heretics, worshiping God in a place that they shouldn't have been worshiping God, not in Jerusalem where the true worship happened. And so they would avoid Samaritans on all costs, and yet Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. That's like an oxymoron in, in Jewish society and Jewish culture. You would never put those two words together. And yet Jesus actually acts on his belief that Samaritans can be good, right? And he intentionally travels through Samaria at one point and sits down at Jacob's well and has a conversation with a woman, something a, a Jewish man shouldn't have been doing anyways, but with a Samaritan woman especially shouldn't be doing. And he begins to offer to her living water, the life-giving water that he has to offer, Jesus turns upside down all of the expectations, all of the social norms of his day, and he treats every single person that he comes across as 
image bearers of God. He treats them with respect. He treats them with dignity. He treats them with value, no matter what society thinks of them, both the wealthy and the poor, those who are accepted and those who are rejected. He treats them the same. Do we do that? Jesus comes to this story and shares a parable to make a point. Now, this parable is a lot like a little parable that Nathan the prophet shared with David after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan comes into David's presence and and tells David the story of a man who has tons and tons of sheep. He has hills full of sheep, and yet he looks at his neighbor, and he sees his neighbor has one little tiny pitiful sheep, and he says, I'm going to take that sheep for myself. And so he steals the sheep, and then he kills the owner of the sheep to cover up what he did. And David, indignant, rises and says, bring this man to me and I will punish him. And Nathan says, you're this man. And the parable was a parable about what David had done and had hidden. When Jesus tells this parable, it should crush us the same way that parable crushed David. Because I guarantee everyone in here is guilty of harboring a grudge, anger, and malice towards somebody who you think has done you wrong, and yet you cling to the forgiveness that Christ has given to you. This parable should hit each one of us straight in the heart. I don't even think I need to explain it anymore. It's pretty obvious, right? How could we be forgiven so much and then demand so little out of our neighbors that we think they owe us? It struck me many years ago as I was struggling in frustration with somebody. I was angry. I was bitter. And God put it on my heart that I was dishonoring the cross. That any sins I felt that they've done against me, that if I truly believe that Jesus died on the cross, not only for my sins, but for their sins, that I was not honoring that Jesus had taken those sins. And if there's anybody who is to deal with that person's sin in their life, it's not me. It's Jesus. Because he's Lord of their life. And they owe their life to him, not to me. More so, I should recognize that my sins are burdened onto Christ on the cross, and I should know that I am culpable for that action. And I should be willing to forgive the person who I think has so badly wounded or hurt me. Because I've been forgiven. What a scary statement Jesus closes this parable with. Did you guys catch that? No one's talking. He says, my father in heaven will forgive you if you forgive those who owe you. For each of us that clings to bitterness 
anger, malice, no matter how big or bad the hurt that was done against us, that statement should terrify us. Because in our unforgiveness, in our unforgiveness of others, we take on a risk that God may judge us by that same judgment that we've cast on another. God calls us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Jesus puts it in a more ridiculous way in another parable. Why would you even begin to try and pull the speck out of your brother or sister's eye when you have a plank or a log in your own eye? Why would you even begin to try and perform surgery on somebody else when you yourself desperately need surgery? And yet we do it all the time. And I think that one of the places we do it the most and we do it the worst is here in the church. There's been a couple times in my adult life I've worked for secular jobs And every time I have, I've felt like I haven't been judged by anybody I work with. And yet constantly in the church, I feel like everyone judges everyone else with standards they would never apply to themselves. Now, I'm not calling our church out particularly for that. I'm calling all Christians out for this. We shouldn't be that place. And if we want to take seriously the work we're doing in discernment and listening to the Spirit's guidance, if we want to take seriously what he's calling us to be as a church, we would become a place that would show mercy and grace and forgiveness for anyone who walks through those doors. And we would become a healing balm for any person we come across when we walk through those doors. And enter out into the community from here. We would show forgiveness like we've been shown forgiveness. We would show love like we've been shown love. Friends, this table shows us the depth of love and forgiveness that each one of us has received. Jesus calls you to love the world like he's loved the world. Well, guess what? He was broken and he bled and he died for us. Have we bled? Have we been broken? Have we been willing to die for those who are outside these walls? Let alone for the ones we sit next to. As we come to this table today, let us be reminded that the floor around this table, forgetting these steps that Mike and I are on, is even. We're on even ground before the foot of the cross or around the table of sacrifice. We come as equals No matter how much sin someone has racked up on their tally board or how much righteousness they've racked up, we all are sinners before God and we all have been forgiven by the work of Jesus. And so we all come as beggars to this table, welcomed in 
by a king of grace who's given us mercy and love and forgiveness. Let us pray. Before you begin to think, oh, that guy up there rebuking all of us, I make a mess of my life almost as badly as I make of the communion table, uh, which I spilled the juice all over the place here. So I am needing to forgive so many people. So this week, my charge to me, and I hope you will join me in it, is to work to forgive those who have done wrongs against us to work to show them grace and mercy as you have been shown grace and mercy. And when you find it too hard, come to God with it and ask him to give you the strength that you are incapable of to show grace, mercy, and forgiveness to even the worst offenses in the name of Jesus.